rhythm is the most uh, healing quality uh, that uh, human beings can really uh, have, whether you are actually a drummer yourself or, in fact, a parishioner uh, who uh, can take that in and readjust their nervous system and then go back to their everyday life and be a better father, be a better worker, be a better person. And so much of this spirit and rhythm derived from the uh, city of New Orleans, a bastion and hotbed of R&B, and really uh, p- many people consider the birth- birthplace of jazz, and there were, there were these families down there that really set the tone for uh, community and humanity within the music, making music with your friends, and believe it or not, uh, at that time, with a record-based uh, music industry, you were able to commodify uh, the music that you loved, that you were able to press on record. And I get a chance today to speak to somebody who's continuing to swing away in the modern era, but um, I think he understands the, the roots of his family lineage, and I think he also understands that uh, the work that he's doing, the rhythms that he's creating, and the healing will live on long after he's left this planet. Russell Batiste, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hello. Hello, world. <laughs> welcome. Yeah, you are welcome, my friend. You know, um, I just, I, I kind of wanted you to talk about, if you could, um, this idea of uh, of rhythm as a healing force in your own personal existence. I mean, the idea that, uh, you know, people can go to psychotherapy, people can do yoga, people can... But, I mean, there's something called nada yoga, which is sound yoga, and that's kind of what your path has been about, and I just wanted you to talk about how healing rhythm has been to you in your life. Um, well, in anybody's life, if uh, you can uh, have a rhythm playing that's going to have your head going up and down or side to side or what have you, that's the, that's the purpose of a, a rhythm. Uh, musically, to me, uh, I think if I can uh, pull off a groove and and have somebody nodding to the groove, uh, just moving their head, not necessarily dancing, but just nodding their head or what have you, and that's some some type of uh, of uh, healing to me. Uh, is also a, a, a form of communication to people that you don't even know. Or what have you? You're talking to them without even uh, saying hello. Hmm. You know they're, they're out there in the audience or in the crowd or what have you. Or they might just be walking down the sidewalk and they hear a drummer playing, especially here in New Orleans. And next thing you know, they're nodding their head to the beat or whatever or something. You know that's a uh, that's communication to me. That's uh, very important in the, in my life because uh, you know I'm here as a. Uh, I'm out here as a drummer, but you know a lot of people don't know that uh, I write and compose most of the music that I play. You know, I just don't sit behind a set of drums and beat. You know, most of the music that I've been playing, I compose as well. It's so funny you said that because uh, I remember you go back. <laughs> you go back. I never interviewed him, but like Max Roach composed so much of his own music and they were he always felt shafted by record producers drummers can't write their own music uh, they can't be band leaders uh d- d- can you talk about where that uh, you know sort of 
composition streak comes from? I mean, when when did you start? To me, it's all about original music. I mean, it's unfortunate, not necessarily New Orleans, but today, you know, in Tucson, where I live, really badass musicians will come in. You know, they'll, they don't, their name doesn't jump off the page, but, you know, it's like Lenny White and Buster Williams are their rhythm section. But for whatever reason, they, they say, you know, we're doing, we're doing Keith Jarrett compositions or some cat will be doing Dave Holland compositions. And it's like, why is there this incessant need for comping? I get it. You got to put butts in the seats. But can you just talk about the drive and the passion that you have for creating original music and where that sort of, how you've cultivated well, that over time? I just tell you exactly where it comes from. It comes from inside your soul. Uh, as a kid, uh, being in a, coming from a family uh, as such as the Batiste family, uh, what have you, I was surrounded you know, all, most of my people, all of my uncles and, and my dad, they played music. They played different instruments. So I just wasn't exposed to a drum kit. I was exposed to keyboards, horns, you know, uh, bass guitars, all of that stuff at the same time wow. or whatever. Um, I just uh, happened to uh, pick up a pair of sticks when I was about one of, you know, even before the age of one, and I was keeping time with the music. So by the time I got to maybe two or something, I can play music with, with, with a band. I can play a song with a band. But, you know, I was always uh, intrigued by, uh, uh, you know, I always uh, wanted to play saxophone, which I did, started in the fifth grade until my uh, uh, freshman year in high school, then I joined a drum section. And up until that part, I was like uh, first chair mm. in saxophone and all that stuff. And, and I played baritone sax. I played alto. I played all of you know, and and uh, and I was first check, you know. But I was known as a drummer, you know, because then my dad's band, my dad, you know, they took me out on stage to perform with the band, with the family band. By the time I was six, so by the time I was six years old, I was in nightclubs playing music. No, wait, wait, hold on. What was your dad's name, by the way? His name is David Baptiste. You go check him out. It's, they're called David Baptiste and the Gladiators. The song is called Funky Soul. Oh, my. God. Were you playing, like, the nightcap in Uptown? I played the nightcap. I played the Devil's Den. Oh, my. At Club. six years old. Magic. At six years old. At six years old. Yeah. When I was eight years old, I opened up for the OJs and, and the Dells and the Skylights at City Park Stadium. And then but when I was nine, the 10 the following year, I opened up for Al Green. Um, oh and a couple of other uh, old 70s uh, uh, R&B soul artists uh, at City Park Stadium. Uh, when uh, the Barclays, I opened up for uh, Larry Graham when he quits uh, Sly Family Stone. Sure. And he started Grand Central Station. They came down here to uh, the warehouse. I was I was maybe 11 or 12, and I opened up that show with them. You know, with, with my family, of course, the Baptiste brothers. Uh, well, at that time, they were David Baptiste and the Gladiators. Or what have you. Okay, so yeah. I want to be clear. And this is so beyond. You just went to Never Everland on me there. The David Batiste uh, in yeah. the in the Gladiators, Alvin and Harold were in that band, or who else was in that band? No, it was no Harold, Alvin. It was David Batiste and his brothers, Paul, Peter, Michael, uh, and 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 the drummer who who I first laid eyes on, Stanley Ratcliffe. Oh boy, that's David Batiste and the Gladiators. And and, and and then they had Freddie Lanzo on trombone from from uh, um, Preservation Hall, and also Joe Salisbury 
on Tina Sachs and Frank Parker. And all these cats played at Preservation Hall. But they were the horn sections back in the in, in the late 60s and early 70s for, for uh, David Baptiste and the Gladiators and all that stuff. So, and all these people, you know, were in my home. Where, you know, the, the band rehearsed at my house. So, uh, like, I can remember when I was baby five and I was sitting on Jackie Wilson's lap. Oh He's poking God. me in the stomach singing Lonely Tidlock. <laughs> I'm saying, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, dude! Yeah. So, so, so yeah. I, I, I say, I, I want to go back and say that you know, uh, I, I, I came out the womb playing drums. As you know, no, you know, that was God telling me I'm going to be a, a, if anything, I'm going to be a drummer. But you know, growing up and all that stuff, uh, by the time I was eight or nine, I started playing bass. So with my dad, them, they would bring me out. I would play drums, do a solo, then I would get off the drums and grab the bass. I'll play bass and do a bass solo, and then I'll get up there and play a song on sax as well. And then I used to dance like uh, Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I mean, <laughs> this, is full. I, this is full. This is unreal, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So by the time I got to college, I, would, I was writing songs, and a lot of songs like the uh, tunes that I did with Papa Girl's Phone, that band there and all that stuff. Those songs were written in 1978 and 79 when I was in the ninth grade, you know, and, and, and it, it took like 20, 30 years for those songs to come to life with those bands. But I written those songs, a lot of those songs on bass, because at that time, that's what I was trying to be, a bass player, because I already knew how to play the drums and, and I was first chair saxophone, so I picked up the bass and started writing tunes on bass, but... I couldn't tell the, the cast, you know, I would play the bass line, and then they would play the, the guitars, keyboard. they would play whatever they wanted on there. Uh, it wasn't until I got to college and I met the ultimate, Mr. Edward Kidd Jordan and Mr. Roger Dickerson, uh, who put me behind the piano and taught me theory. And when they did that, my life changed, uh, I say, not overnight, over a month, <laughs> over a month's time, my whole life changed. Because I started uh, writing music. I started creating and composing music from that point on in 1985 until today. I would have you. So, you know, at, and, and, and then I started getting a little attitude because people were telling me, uh, well, you're a great drummer, you're a great drummer, you're a great drummer. And I'm like, nah, man, I'm an all right drummer, but I could be a great musician. Right. Which means. You know what I'm saying? Right. I'm not just the drum in the band. I I'm dig. I, this is un. The, the, I want to. This is very important for younger cats. I want you to talk to younger cats. Don't. Do you feel that all the experience cooking the groove in those nightclubs with the gladiators made the theory come to life? What I mean by that is today. <clears throat> For in my case, I believe it's for the worst, but kids are going into the academy, they're learning theory, there's so much material, we're saturated in material, so everyone's comping their professors or trying to sound like somebody or they're transcribing an Elvin Jones solo, whereas they don't have the bandstand experience. Do you feel that the theory was so invigorating for you, not just because it, it sort of helped you make sense of the music itself, but because you had had all that live uh, live band experience preceding it. Yeah, well, 
coming from a musical family, that definitely helped. <laughs> Put it that way. You know, not yeah. everyone that plays music here in New Orleans come from a big family, right. like I did. That, that they all play music, you know. So, but and also, you know, just being born, period, with music in you, or whatever. You know, what I'm saying without taking any lessons or, or without anybody um, uh, telling you anything, you're playing music. Because, you know, that's that's how you were born. And this is how I was born. I was born, you know, I was born with a pair of sticks in my hand. Uh, yeah, there's, I was born in 65, and there's an 8 millimeter uh, film that's uh, like in uh, 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 at 66. So, you know, I just maybe not even turned one yet. But I'm sitting on the lady's lap behind a set of drums with a pair of sticks hitting the drums. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and, and that's... That's the way I was born, man. It was just in me. You know, that's the way most of my family members were born. They were born to play music. You know, a lot of people were born to, you know, play sports or do other things. The bat, the But, you know, the majority of the Batiste family, they were born to play music. We were born to communicate to the world, uh, whatever, through music. Absolutely. So, no, this is beautiful. So tell me a little bit about your fan. I need, this is really important. Uh, obviously, you know the history of uh, <clears throat> after the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, you know the the idea of just restricting the the drums to Congo Square and uh, with slaves cutting their hands off if they were caught with a drum. Uh, the, people having their tongues cut out so they couldn't speak their native language. Could you, how far back have you traced the history of your family to the motherland? Um. I've never even bothered, man. I, I because that's where the rhythm, I mean, to me, that's where the rhythm, that, like you said, you were born with music. The, the thing yeah. is, this is a Eurocentric culture. You, you were born with rhythm because your family came from the motherland. Okay, well, wherever they came from, I know that, <laughs> that, that the God that I believe in, uh, yeah. the Holy Ghost or what have you, the Spirit or whatever, whatever I was born in, you know, I, I, I can only tell you about my history, you know. Uh, and this is my history. And I was born to play music, you know. So wherever it comes from, Congo Square and all that stuff, you know, that was before my time. I just know by the time 1965 when I was born, I was put on this earth to play music or whatever. And, and I've been exposed to thousands of people that played music. And all of this stuff went into my soul. And so when I was old enough and able to uh, to create my own music that came from out of my own uh, my own soul, that's what I did. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And, and and that's that's what I do for a living. I, I create music to try and communicate to the people in the world through song. And and you know and and whatever you hear me doing out there is, it comes from my soul. You know, it comes from my history of me being born, uh, Russell Bat David Russell, because I'm David Baptiste, I'm Junior, David Russell Baptiste Junior, hmm. and, and and my dad exposed me to a lot of music uh, in 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 our country of New Orleans, because a lot of people don't realize uh, the city of New Orleans is just not a city. We're a country within a country. Explain that. You know, explain that, explain that, that. Okay, you're not going to have a second line band in Mississippi. Right. Uh, 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 Lafayette or something like that. You're not going to have the kind of music and the food that we have outside of the rounds of Louisiana or whatever. But New Orleans, like I said, you're not going definitely not going to have no parades like talking about it 
like like we have here in New Orleans every year or whatever since I was born or even before I was born or what have you. You're not going to have that kind of lifestyle or living or whatever unless you're in the country of New Orleans, Louisiana. You can't go anywhere else and get red beans and rice. You know, Popeye started from here. <laughs> I dig, man. No, I dig. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I was in this band called Vida Blue. And, you know, we Dude, explain that. I know that. Yeah, tell me about that band because I, 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 I've heard it over. It's the greatest uh, name, too. <laughs> uh, one thing I tell you about that band, when uh, this, the Cat Page, the keyboard player for Fish, he asked me to join the band and go out on tour with them. And I say, okay, man, I'll go out on the road with you and all that stuff. But the first thing I'm going to ask you when we go to any state or whatever, where's Popeye's? <laughs> 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 the one thing we know for sure, or whatever, that Popeyes all over the world, or whatever, the ingredients that they make is the same ingredients in New Orleans, right. or what have you. So you can have a taste of our country wherever you go through Popeyes. I love this, dude. I, it's true. My daughters and I, we get, we, you know, we can feel it. We can taste it. Yeah, because I haven't been to other places that tried to serve us. Are we going to serve y'all red beans and rice and all this stuff? And, uh, and it was just that. It was red beans and rice. They have no gravy, no smoked sauces, none of that stuff that, like, you know, like like the ingredients that it takes to make that down. Yeah, the, the, the things that make it a gumbo, make it special, you know? Yeah, I did. Yeah, <laughs> and that's it, gumbo. Where else are you going to get gumbo outside the country of New Orleans? Oh, what have you? And be the real deal. Oh my God! I'm get, yeah, and no, I'm getting hungry right now. No, listen. Uh, the the I want. I, I, so so okay. Your dad wasn't some Dave. Your your father was not somebody who was gonna was not an ethnomusicologist, but he he exposed you to so much different music. Can you talk about uh, the H and R bar? Did you did you get a chance to 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 play with the Mardi Gras Indians at all? Yeah, I played with the Wild Chopper Twos, and I played with the Wild Magnolias for a moment. Oh uh, for a you moment? Guys, you played with the Magnolias? Yeah, I played with the Wild Magnolias for, for a good minute there, for a second there. Um, and, uh, in the early 2000s, and, and as, as late as the late 90s, like in 98, 97, and all that stuff, I was a drummer with the, with the Wild Magnolias, with Bo Dallas and, and all those cats, you know what I'm saying, Monk. And stuff, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, Monk, I mean, that, can you talk about, I mean, so but when back in the 70s, nine years old, I mean, d- that that was when, like, I remember interviewing, I think it was, <laughs> uh, I can't remember if it was Juan Pardo or Bo Dallas Jr., but, you know, at that time, like, uh, there was a lot of, there was a lot of fighting within the different tribes, and then they, they got them to kind of say, why are you killing each other? The The violence was there. I'm just wondering, like, when you, would your dad take? Hey, well, you know, <laughs> at, 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 at one point, uh, at one point in time in, in the history of New Orleans Mardi Gras Indians, it was just almost like a street gang, like the Bloods and the Crips. Exactly, dude. <laughs> you know, and and as a kid, I couldn't understand why this man was trying to bust this other man upside the head with a real hatchet. Or what have you, you know what I'm saying? I just, I couldn't understand that. But, you know what I'm saying, time has passed and, uh, and, 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 and the different tribes of Indians out here, uh, realize that, uh, doing Mardi Gras and, and different things or whatever, they're tourists that come down here and, and they, uh, it was very profitable at one, t- at, at, at some point for them to not be doing the stuff that they were doing and just to, to entertain 
the people that were really coming to see them. And then, and then also, you know, you really couldn't go in, and white people especially couldn't go into a lot of places where these Indians were performing in the club. Yeah, you're right about you know? that. That's right. <laughs> they couldn't do it. So, you know what I'm saying? And then when you, as an Indian, you can't, you just got to figure, well, you know, if we're going to try and, uh, and profit from uh, our heritage, uh, what we're doing here, you know, we have to include everyone. We just can't entertain our people. We have to t- entertain everybody who sees us. You know what I'm saying? So anybody that comes to the, the country of New Orleans, what have you, and they want to see the Mardi Gras Indians or what have you, now you are able to without fearing for your life. You know, <laughs> you can be entertained, you can be, you know, uh, amused, you can be entertained, you can see what the real deal is without you know, them going back to the old ways like they used to do, you know what I'm saying? And oh, absolutely. It's not, dedicated to, it's not just dedicated to Afro-Americans. It's dedicated to everyone, Japanese, and all kind of people. You know, It's dedicated to the world now. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and I love the Mardi Gras Indians. Uh, at one point, even me, I used to be scared to go see the Indians because of the, the, the atmosphere and the things that used to be happening around there but you know the one thing that couldn't keep me away from them is the groove that these cats played on beer bottles cans and cigarette machines dude cigarette machines yeah everything yeah because you know i used to go to and check them out and then try and go and do those grooves on my drum kit exactly you know what i'm saying yeah and 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 a lot of new orleans drummer drummers some of the funkiest uh 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 drummers who you know, been to like the the the, the second line brass bands here. You know, the the guys playing the bass drum and the other guys playing the snare and all that stuff. Well, if you can create that by yourself on a drum kit, you know what I'm saying? You one bad mother. You know what I'm saying? And I I mean, dude. I, I, so tell me about. There's a couple cats I wanted to ask you about. I mean, obviously they were well into their professional careers, and you were still freaking in ninth grade or younger. Um, But the two guys, they've been in my heart recently. I've been listening to a lot of Dizzy Gillespie records with these guys on them, and they're both New Orleans cats. One was George Davis, and the other was David Lee. Did you ever cross paths with those cats? I have a stick bag from David Lee. No, (laughs) dude, David Lee, man, he's looking down. I want you to talk, because that dude... Ernie Ellie said he. I have a leather stick bag from him, man. Because uh, I used to play at this jazz club called Snug Harbor uh, back sure. in the early 80s. Sure. And, uh, and I used to always go check him out when he played when I could, you know, and stuff. But uh, he was he he was amazing. Um, the the I want to I can't call his guy's name, but the guy who played on a, 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 most of the Fast Dominoes, uh, Earl Palmer. Earl Palmer. He said, oh Lord. You know what I'm saying? He was a god on uh, playing New Orleans and uh, playing New Orleans music uh, as a drummer or what have you. He was a god. Uh, also, James Black. There's so many drummers around here. You just can't name them all. Well, I know. There's. I want you to, but like some of these guys are. So, <laughs> Earl Palmer went to L.A. Obviously, made his mark in New Orleans. The the other guys, uh, Ed Blackwell, you mentioned um, James Black, Ed Blackwell, and then. Uh, John Boudreaux as well. I mean, the the, the, the oh, yeah, John Boudreaux is a oh, lord. 
He's one like one of the coldest drummers that ever come out of the <laughs> So I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, like, do you feel like were these all guys that your dad was taking you to see? Uh, yeah, but, but not just those. Like I said, there's some cats that you've never heard of sure. in your life. Yeah, of like, course. Swing, swinging Melvin he used to wear the big Stetson hat with the feather sticking out. He wouldn't touch the stage until he put that hat on. Oh Melvin. my God, dude. There was a there was a twenty seven black twenty seven black used to wear a red uh, scarf around his neck. He would not pick up a pair of sticks until he put that red rag around his neck or whatever. <laughs> 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 so he's called him twenty seven black, and I mean he was a beast on drums. Uh, you know, again Stanley Ratcliffe, the first drummer I ever laid eyes on, was one of the coldest drummers out here. And then I even had the pleasure of having Zigaboo rehearse because my dad was the keyboard player for the Meters in the seventies, late seventies. Get out of here! On, yeah, that's my dad on Saturday Night Live when they do "Got to Get My Name Up for Lights." The only appearance that the Meters ever made on Saturday Night Live. David Batiste was that on that. Playing. Dude, I am going to be watching that all day, dude. Yeah. That's my dad playing that. And they, they rehearsed in my house before they went on Saturday Night Live to do that show and stuff. You know, I had Leo, George, and Zigaboo oh. in my front row. <laughs> <laughs> my wait a minute. Dude. Wait, was, wait Arthur, was Art wasn't feeling I, well or what happened? He left the band? Art quit the meters. Art farmed it. He quit the meters to start playing with his brothers. They farmed the Neville Brothers then. Right. Uh, 76, 77 or what have you. And so when he left, they went and got my dad. Because at some point, the meters and the gladiators used to go to each of the shows and check each other out and stuff. And as, you know, that's a uh, song called Chug a Lug or whatever. That's my Uncle Paul that's playing guitar on that record. Oh, my God, dude. This that's, is that's, sick, that's, dude. That's, yeah, because Paul was the, the chink master. You know, I'm talking about chink, and I'm talking about that chick, chick, Oh, dude, the, yeah, no, the, 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 chick, yeah, the chicken yeah. scratch, yeah. He was yeah. the chink master in New Orleans. You know what I'm saying? And so when you wanted that, that's who they went to. They went to Paul. Right, he did, was doing like the David T. Walker, Wah Wah Watson stuff in the New Orleans vein. Yeah, what well, David T. You know, Wawa Washington was trying to do what Paul did. At, Paul? <laughs> so nobody he, did what Paul did. I've never heard anybody play rhythm guitar or just that soul of that song like my Uncle Paul. And that's just me. That's just coming from me. I, you know what I'm saying? The only, I've never really seen Wawa Washington or uh, uh, all those cats. Uh, you know, I know of them and, uh, as growing up. But, the, the, the you know, when I grew up as a, as from a baby, uh, and, and coming up from kids, and the, the only guitarist I ever had in my life was my uncle Paul, and, and I've never heard anyone that came close <laughs> to him. <laughs> this is odd. Wait, all right, so I want to be clear. Did the Gladiators, you have to excuse me, did they cut albums? Did they go in the studio? We did one album that was called Freeze in, 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 in the 80s. Uh, at that time, I was in the ninth grade or whatever. The, the original drummer, Radcliffe, he quit the band. And so I became the, 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 the drummer for the Batiste Brothers when I was the freshman in high school and stuff. And then we recorded an album um, going into my sophomore year in uh, 81, 82, something like that. And it's called Freeze by the Batiste Brothers Band. The Batiste Brothers. As a matter of fact, John Batiste, the, the, my cousin from the Tonight Show, the Grammy, John Batiste, uh, uh, I was babysitting him when he was a baby, but his uncle, his his dad, is my uncle Michael, the bass, bassist for the Batiste Brothers. 
You know what I'm saying? Dude, you are blowing my... Wait, oh, dude, this is the sickest thing I have ever seen in my life. David Batiste and the Gladiators, Funky Soul Part 1. It says, Funk Your Popcorn. (laughs) Seven-inch record, uh, I mean, rock funk classic. This is insane, (laughs) dude. You're saying this came out like 81, 82? No, 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 no. The funky soul that came out uh, and what in '69, '70. Okay, so so that's what I'm talking about. So you were just, but I mean, you had the sticks in your hand, but you were already you weren't playing gigs at four years old, were you? Well, I was playing. I I I hit the first stage outside of playing in the in the house for the family because when I was by, by the time I was two. My dad and them used to buy me the kid drum kit. So every Christmas, I would play in front of my family, and the whole Batiste family would be at the at our house, the big house, or whatever. And I would play in front of my whole family every Christmas. And, and then, uh, and, and then at some point, you know, my mom allowed my dad to bring me into the nightclub. <laughs> oh my god! And I, and, and I was, uh, I think I was seven at that point, about six or seven. At that point, when I went into my first nightclub, of course they kept my brother, and my brother was uh, five, and and I, and I was I was six, so uh, uh, they kept us in the dressing room or what have you, and then they, my brother and I would come out from behind the curtains, we'd be dancing and all that stuff, and then I'll get on the drums, and my brother, you couldn't even see him, all you could see is hands playing the congos. <laughs> or what have you, but he would be playing the congos and dancing, and I would be playing the drums. And the first tune that I did, they put a microphone on me, and I was singing fingertips uh, and oh. playing the drums by Stevie Wonder. Everybody say yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, and that's the first tune I performed on stage uh, with the with David Batista and Gladiators, and you know, and and I was singing it and all that stuff, and I played the drums and all that stuff. And then um, there was a song that came out. Uh, by uh, 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 Booker and the MGs. Uh, uh, hip, uh, hip Hugger or something, or Green Onions? No, 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 no. It was an instrumental song. But in the middle of this song, they had a drum breakdown. And I did that one, and people just fainted. I won my first talent show playing that song. Dude, you were channeling Al Jackson, dude. Booker T and MGs, that yeah, that, there's an instrumental song that they that, that they had out that was very popular. At, I want to say in '72, uh, '73 around it, and and that year, you know, say, and I did that song and I played that solo and I played it lick for lick, or what have you. And, and even my dad and them, they were just freaked out. They they fell out, man. Yeah, they fell out. That's insane. <laughs> they did. Yeah, they fell out uh, or whatever. And, and and I was just looking at them amazed. I was like. Well, what everybody screaming though? What's the big, you know? It was nothing to me because I could do it. I was born with this. <laughs> I, I no, no. I mean, this is yeah. This is. I'm, first of all, I'm looking at this. The Gladiators on Solon Records. Solon, forty five, forty five RPM. Dude, there are two for sale. The cheapest one is seventy five dollars. This wow. is unreal, <laughs> dude. Now, who's this cat? <laughs> I'm gonna read off this name, Isaac Bolden. Who is that? Yeah, I, well, Isaac Bolden is, is one of the cats who ran the studio that a, that a bunch of these bands, Alan Toussaint, and all these people that they were they were recording it in the studio. And Isaac Bolden 
was a part of the studio. You know, he he ran the studio. He and uh, there's another guy, Joe Banishak uh, or something. Yeah, and you know, I was like I said again, I was a kid. No, I'm stretching you out. I'm was it Minute Rec? I'm trying to figure out what studio it was before C Saint, obviously. Yeah, it was way before C Saint, but you know. Again, as a kid, I don't, I you know, I don't know, man. I know you were just, you were just, you were just banging out. You were just, you were just hitting the drum. You were just having a ball. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was, I was like Russell, get out the way, get out the way. <laughs> I was in everybody's, you know, picking on everybody's instruments or whatever while they was trying to record and do all this stuff. Until they had to bring me and sit me in another room and had somebody hold me because you know every chance I got, I was trying to play somebody's instrument. <laughs> It's still that way today. I mean, you still can't get enough of it. It's unbelievable. It's just, it's like, so you would say that your your father, um, obviously your mom, it was sort of the sign of the times. There were large families all over the country. You'd have big band practices. Eventually your mom let you go to the clubs. But your dad, the Gladiators, in the same conversation as uh, Willie T and the Gators, uh, the meters. I mean, they were, they were on the scene and as important to that new Orleans. Would you consider it the new Orleans sound? Was it electric? Um, it, it definitely wasn't post bop. You weren't playing like Art Blakey tunes. I don't think, I mean, what kind of music? Nah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the gladiators, David Batista, and the gladiators, were, were a part of, of some of the most funkiest music that ever came out of New Orleans or what have you. You know, they, they, were, the, they were the bands that other bands would come and check out. Oh, I dig. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and so they just didn't get the recognition that other bands got. But, you know, not to, you know, out in the public, but to the other musicians, to, to New Orleans musicians out here, and, and to a lot of musicians in the state of Louisiana, period. You know, David Batista and the Gladiators was a major force uh, with the music that you hear even to, to, to date that's, that's out there. Well, I'm going to have to do a deep dive. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to ask you, you know, from a, uh, from a layperson's view, I mean, that's a heavy statement to make, and I don't deny it, but rhythmically, what were they doing that made cats like Zig or whoever else go and want to see them? What were they doing that was so progressive? <laughs> Go listen to Funky Soul Part Two. You go listen to Funky Soul Part Two, and that'll answer your question. Uh, well, all right. No, that sounds. I mean, nobody, yeah. there's nobody that I've ever heard come up with a groove like that. And you're talking about no solos and none of that stuff. Just the music, just that groove alone, or what have you. You know, and, and they were like 18, 19, you know, and, and, and it makes me cry a lot of time when I listen to that because I think that's my dad when he was 19, 20, 19, 18. You know, that's my dad when he was a kid, you know, what have you. And it's just, uh, I'm just, as, as as his son, I'm just amazed uh, by my uncles and, and my dad, what they laid down back back in those days. And you, like I said, you go put on Funky Soul. Part one, but turn it over to part two. I'm going to turn it over. Oh, I'm going to have to stream it. I can't afford this thing. Forty-five. This forty-five is, is <laughs> insanely expensive. In the '80s, so so at that point, Ratcliffe had left the band, and that and that. And that, I became a drummer. Yeah. Now, did you guys actually do domestic? Did you do some domestic touring at that time? Uh, we did a little touring here and there, but we couldn't go too far because, like I said, I was in high school. Oh, yeah, no, your mom, your mom, you got your mom and dad wanted to get you get your your d- diploma, right? 
Yeah, but my mom didn't want me to go out on the road and traveling with the, you know, they had to hire other drummers when they left out of the state of Louisiana or what have you, because my mom would not let me skip school or miss school or whatever to go travel with the band. I dig. No, you're, you, there were, you were not alone. There were many, many cats. I think, I'm trying to remember who it was, but some soul outfit had to go and talk, convince the parents to take the kid on the road. They didn't want to let him go. Um, can you talk about, in your memory, the first one of the first memorable road dog experiences you had when when your mom said, "All right, well, I mean, he's he's a he's he's a man now," and 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 what that was about, what that was like, because I mean, that's part of the issue. I thought you were going to say that the gladiators were so popular regionally they didn't even have to tour, but obviously they did go around the south and stuff. And I'm just wondering when you first hit the road. Uh, I can't take, man, I'm a, what I'm going to do is when we finish this, I'm going to give you my dad's info. You're going to talk to him. He's going to tell you everything you could possibly think Oh, of. wait, wait. David Batiste is still with us. Yeah. Yeah. My oh, dad, my dude, dude. This is unreal. Okay. So anyway, but no, I'm saying like, did you, when were you, when did you first become a leader of a band and get, a, and, and do the, and, and hit the road? Um, the leader of the band hit the road. <laughs> I became the leader of my own band. Yeah, I would say like in '97, '90 well '98, and I put uh, my band together. Uh, uh, Russell Batiste and the orchestra from the hood. <laughs> yeah, because I had a, I had a, I had a cat playing oboe. Oh I had a God. violin player. Oh. I had all, you know all these different weird instruments playing funk. Oh you know my what I'm God, dude, that's filthy, dude. <laughs> yeah, and then playing all my composition. I had a, a four-piece horn section, and, and, and including a horn player. And, and, you know, I had different instrumentation that uh, uh, that was unusual to see in a funk band. Yeah, you're not you're not seeing a lot of fiddles or violins and funk music, you know, or oboes right. for that. You know, I mean, though Betty Maupin played that uh, bass clarinet, which was pretty badass in the Headhunters. I mean, um, what, what, what do you... He was killer with the headhunters. I used to love him. Dude, he I, I, I is... I still love him. Benny Marfin. Benny oh, Marfin. Dude, man, I mean, dude, the dude just could take it to the, to the heavens. You know, a bass clarinet in the funk, you know, playing that. Are you kidding me, dude? It's insane. Now, <laughs> um, <laughs> what is your... Can you talk to younger cats? I mean, there's a, this is the, the bottom line, Russell. Like, you were blessed. You're blessed with, with natural rhythm and music in your head and heart and soul. A lot of younger, and I'm talking younger cats like millennials, even my generation. I was born in 78. So many of them, you know, go back to Art Blakey's band. You had Bobby Timmons. You had Cedar Walton. You had Freddie Hubbard. You had uh, Wayne Shorter. All, but there was a farm system. You didn't become a leader overnight, okay? You had to do this apprenticeship and learn. Today, a lot of cats are getting the positions, and not just in music, they're being anointed leaders before they've had any experience as a leader. It's not going to work out so well, and I just wonder, like, what in your mind? What are what are the most important qualities of leadership on the street corner or on the bandstand in Russell Batiste's mind? Uh, in my mind, uh, uh, if you're able to uh, to, uh, I, I would say, uh, create uh, what you're hearing in, in, inside of your soul, if you're able to uh, bring that to life. That's the most important thing. Uh, no matter what kind of music, what genre it is, or what have you, uh, if you hear something inside of your soul, 
and you're able to bring it to life so you can present it to the world. That's the most important thing to me. And, you know, I, I would suggest that everyone, you know, go back and listen to the mu- music from the, from the 40s and the 50s and on up. You know, go listen to everything because, you know, I, I listen to a lot of classical music. Sure. You know, I, I love the three tenors. Yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? I dig. Listen, I love Yanni. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually into Yanni hard. I, I love what he does with, with that band and all that stuff. So, you know, I'm just into all kinds of music, man. I'm just not into... One thing, uh, since I'm from New Orleans, I'm just going to play New Orleans street, street beat, second line music. And I play, you know, I love all kinds of music or whatever. You know, as a matter, you know, the, the, like they said, in Congo Square, people came from, the slaves, all these people came from different countries and ended up in that one spot or what have you. And they, they combined their souls together to create one sound. Or what have you, you know, because there's no one person from no one place that can think of all these things that you hear musically mm. or whatever that's out here. You know, there's people from different countries, from different worlds or whatever that, you know, when you hear them and all that stuff, you, you'd be like, wow, how could they even think of that? You know what I'm saying? I would never thought of it, even attempting to play something like that or even hear, uh, you know, I, I don't mm. have that in my heart, my soul, but they do. Yeah, I did. So I want that with my music. I want to put that in, in you know, with, with what I'm here and all that stuff. It's a gumbo of music, man. A gumbo of music from around the world. And you try, you know, because I'm trying to play music that's going to reach people around the world. Not just people who come visit the city of New Orleans. Or, uh, we take New Orleans out to, to different places or what have you and stuff. I want to be able to communicate with everyone. I want to go back to the, I just want to go back quickly. Like, I think the leadership component, you said, I, I want to be able to get whatever I can feel in my, in my body, in my system, that music, I want to get it out the way it's supposed to feel. And so the challenge as a leader is to inspire the cats around you to get that entire conversation going. And I just, to me, like, that's the important thing is finding cats that you know are going to come in and do what they do best. I remember uh, Dave Holland telling me that when Train first joined Miles, he used to keep coming up, Train used to keep coming up to Miles and saying, what do you want me to play? What do you want me to play? And Miles kept turning his back on him. And Train finally realized that uh, he wanted him to be himself. And that to me is, that's what the leadership is, is you're not playing in isolation. It's not Russell Batiste on drums for 45 minutes set. You have to put people around you that are going to bring to life the vision of the like, tune that uh, you have. Yeah, like, like you know, in my band, even today, uh, I compose and I, and, and, and 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 I get on the piano and, and I and I, and I tell Phil what what I'm what I'm playing on the keyboards, and then once he gets what I'm playing on keyboards, then he becomes Phil and he takes <laughs> it to another level. <laughs> but he, you know what I'm saying? He does feel. Uh, on that stuff, the bass player. I play the bass line for him or what have you. And then he being the bassist, he uh, he he does what he want to do in that rounds or what have you. And I'm I'm surrounded by some great musicians. Uh, these cats are younger cats. I got I mean you know I'm the oldest person in my band by at least 10, 20 years, and everyone that's in my band or what have you. So and, and, and these cats are really great to me. 
You know what I'm saying? That's why, you know, I perform with them. I've seen them play out there on the streets or what have you. And, and just listening to them, I, I, I say, well, I can hear them playing something that I, that I composed. Right. I, I love that, dude. Yeah, I can hear them being themselves playing a Russell Batiste composition or what have you. And, and, uh, and I'm very excited and happy every time I get a chance to play with my band or whatever and, 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 and play my compositions or what have you because, you know, these cats play stuff that I couldn't think of. Uh, it, although it's my song, it's, you know, stuff that I created, but once I show it to them, then they put their own touch and their soul into it, then that's what makes the music happen. That's what makes it exciting and it makes it very interesting and most importantly, it makes it very fun to play. Well, let me ask you. I mean, I want to be. I want to. I want. To, I want to get your take on this. Is the idea of in in Russell Batiste's band, um, if if somebody hits a clam, does everybody go with them? You know, and then you you create new vocabulary. I mean, nobody wants to make, hit a, hit a clam, but if you do, um, I mean, are you that are you that caught up in perfection, or you, do you allow the music to get a little bit greasy, or even take on a life of its own? Yeah, man. At some point, on the gig, doing the gig, if I hear somebody, they're doing something that they haven't done at rehearsal or what have you, uh, sometimes it catches me, and we go from there. Yeah. You know, I just stop the groove, say, hold up. <laughs> I keep a beat going. I say, keep playing what you're playing right there. And then I tell the bass player, you fall in with that, and we all fall in. That. There you go. We got another whole song that we're not even thinking of. Uh, you know, we just made that up on the spot on the stage because somebody did something, and and, and I caught an ear to it. I, I heard it. I said, "Wow, you know where that comes from?" Okay, I want to hear that again if I can, and, and keep it going. You know, saying so. Although we rehearsed the song and did this, when we're on the gig, everything is anything goes. You know, saying for to make music, right? I mean, we're not a machine. I don't, you know, I don't want to sound like we all pressing. Everybody's gonna play the same thing all the time. Exactly, that's dude. Me, that's one thing with, with me, and, 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 and especially with my band or any band that I play with or whatever. But especially my band, Russell Batista and Friends or whatever. We can play the same song a thousand times, and it's gonna be a thousand times different every time we play it. Yeah, you say you never play the same song the same way once. I love it. I could. Yeah. I can't do it. I love it. I, I freaking that's the I, that's the only music I want to go see. It, it, well, otherwise, you know, it just is a formula I, trip. And, and what I mean by I, I can't do it is that I've tried. I cannot do it. I cannot duplicate. <laughs> you know, yeah. I cannot duplicate. Uh, I, there's a cat, uh, Stanton Moore, the drummer for Galactic. Yeah, yeah. You know, I taught him. I would have you. And, and Stanton used to call me uh, the night after a show that he, he was there uh, watching me play. And I would say, hello, the phone rang. Hello. <laughs> and I hear some, somebody banging on the drums and stuff. Hello, hello. Hey, Russell, this is me, Stanton. Listen to this. All right, Stanton, that sounds pretty cool and stuff. Oh, what you mean, Russell? You don't remember that? You played that last night. <laughs> I don't know what I played last night. That's perfect, dude. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean that's a that's a gift. That's the gift of genius because you're not holding on. Nothing is too precious. It's coming out of you. It, you're a conduit, and then you move on, and it comes out a different way. And the idea of trying to comp it or try to perseverate on it or be it so attached to it 
It, uh, to me, you can't grow as an artist that way. I mean, I, that's just the way I feel about my interviews, too. I've never done the same interview the same way once, ever. They always come out completely different. And I just think that that is, if there's one thing of essence that you could pass on to every musician that you get come in contact with, it's never play the oh, same song the same way once. Uh, uh, this, well, another thing is like, because uh, I get a lot of people, a lot of drummers, even a lot of other musicians that play other instruments, uh, wants to come to me to school them and all that stuff. And I'm like, well, I don't know what I can teach you. If you already know how to play music, you can already know how to play whatever instrument you're trying to play. <laughs> and the rest is on you. You and God. Oh, yeah. Dude, you're making it real easy on them, man. Yeah. Man, you know, you play what you hear in your heart and your soul. And, and what you practice on, what you go home and practice, practice playing what you hear. What you're trying to hear yourself playing or what have you, and, 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 you know, thank God it's not, you know, trying to imitate me because I cannot be imitated or duplicated. I, you know, you can try, but it's just, it's just impossible to, to duplicate. Yeah, the algorithms are never going to be the same, dude. I freaking love right. it, dude. Now, also, the final, the, you know, uh, I just, I have to get this on the table. I mean, it bothers me a lot. I mean, there's nothing I can do about it, and I'm not a musician, so I'm really not going to be judgmental, but I see so many cats. I'm talking at blues gigs, and they got charts on the bandstand. I mean, you'd never see McCoy Tyner or John Coltrane with, with charts or an iPad. Does Russell, wow. does Russell Batiste, do you have uh, charts on the bandstand? Because in, in, in those guys' minds, that's just a rehearsal. Man, let, let me tell you something. <laughs> I just, uh, my guitarist, uh, whatever, uh, I got to call him today and let him know that he's still in the band. Because at that point, I told him I had enough. Because uh -oh. he tried to walk on my stage with a bandstand. And I made him take the band, the, his, his uh, band uh, stand, to put his music on. Uh, whatever he charted out to learn my music, I told him I don't want that on stage ever in, in, in the history of playing with me or what have you. Holy you know, cow, play. dude. Yeah. yeah, this happened on the gig uh, Sunday. Oh. <laughs> this is, you're, you really are my, so 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 you you kind of fired him, but he's coming back in the band. Yeah, because I love the way he plays, man. You know what I'm saying? He's, uh, his name is Ian Cunningham. He's one of the funkiest uh, uh, guitarists that, uh, that I've heard here in, 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 in New Orleans or what have you. you know, I love his rhythm. He has great rhythm, you know. Soloing, he's a he's pretty cool, but his rhythm, just the groove. Oh, I forget know, it. The rhythm is key. Yeah, he's cold blooded to me. So, and, and with that being that I compose the music or what have you, if you don't remember something, I'm gonna tell you what to play on stage or whatever. I'm gonna give you a simple thing to play, and then you go from there, and then we can play the song and keep the the the, the shows moving. That's right. You know, we don't have to stop and wait for you to flip through the yellow pages to find a song or whatever, because you don't, you know, there's a song that he didn't play a, a, a few times, but we haven't played it in a while, and he forgot it. And so he panicked, and he left the stage, uh, he left, and, and he actually went to his house, to go get his his book of music, his his chart during the gig during the gig. Well, actually, we haven't started the gig because we were waiting for him. He was there, <laughs> and then he left because I told him, "Look, I want to play this song tonight." And he freaked. Oh, we're gonna play that? I don't have. I don't remember that. I don't remember that. And he left and went to his house, which was about a mile or two from the gig or whatever. But we still had to stand there on stage and wait for him to come back to start the show. 
and that stuff. And that really got me upset or what have you because I could have just simply told him, I want you to play this and stuff. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to read those charts or you don't have to try and remember anything. I'm going to tell you what to play while we're playing it's about tr- that 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 whole thing comes down to trust. It's like a belief, yeah. a trust on the bandstand. Like I, dude, you are my kind of musician. It is so invigorating to hear that stuff yeah. because the old the cats, your dad included. I mean, you wouldn't see charts on the bandstand. I I, I just feel like also um, this this need for perfection from younger generations is insane. I mean, ultimately, yeah. Let me tell you, uh, Go ahead. My, when I got into college or whatever, and I was calling, trying to play with the big band. Now, I played saxophone, so I know how to read the uh, horn music and all that stuff. But today, I still don't know how to read drum charts. Right. Or whatever. And so, and so my band, the kid John, told me and taught me how to swing and stuff. And what he did, he put trumpet lines and saxophone lines on my on, on my band, on, on my band, uh, on my band's uh, 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 stand or what have you, and I was reading the horn parts while I was swinging. So by the time we finished the song, we went down the first time, I moved the music out of the way because I memorized all that stuff. Absolutely. So I, can hear, <laughs> I can hear stuff maybe one time down and memorize it and all that stuff. You know, I, I don't know where I get that talent. That's another gift from God, but it don't take me long to, 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 to uh, learn a song and know it from top to bottom once I've heard it and once I know where it's going or what it's supposed to do then the music in me that it kicks in and then you know we're playing music now we're not just reading charts we're playing music and, you know even in the big band in the big you know jazz band the swing band and all that stuff it's you know the most important thing of playing music is to actually play music or uh, whatever and and I just, you know, once you learn a song, there's no need for no charts and no papers to be around, man. You know, it's just a matter of you uh, having a, uh, I guess, remembering and, 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 and try and make it happen. But yeah. even, even if you don't remember, you still can make it happen because you have that uh, that much music in your soul. So whatever challenges come your way at that particular moment, you can handle it. You know, you're able to take charge of, uh, of that moment and make it work. You know, and that's the thing about music to me or whatever. It's just making things, making whatever, making it all work musically. You know what I'm saying? Just make it happen. Russell that's Batiste, tough. I mean, dude, I, we just cooked for an hour here. We're definitely going to do set two, man. I, I am just honored to be able to hear your ethos and methodology learned from the from the from the older generation you're bringing it to the newer generation they desperately need it um because to me it's not the drummer's job is not being a metronome the drummer should be able to think naturally and play what they feel i remember lewis hayes saying to me uh from cannonball's band you know it was really difficult because for many years with I mean Cannonball never told him what to play. Then all of a sudden he got with Oscar Peterson and it was a much more sophisticated style of jazz. There were certain parts that he had to play and it would really piss him off because nobody ever told him what to play before. And it right. was so it was an adjustment and I just feel like the drums are essential for healing. Going back to the original part of our interview 
And if you're just going to treat the drummer as a timekeeper, you're defeating the whole point of spiritual music. So the fact that you can never play the same song the same way once, and the fact that you don't want any freaking music charts on the bandstand, is th those are the two single ingredients in Jake Feinberg's mind that, that can create spiritual music. And I wish more cats would be vulnerable to that, man. So mad props to you. Thank you so much, man. And I enjoy talking to you. Uh, call me anytime. I, you know, next time you call, I'm going to have my dad on, on. Well, no, yeah. I mean, just I mean, let's. I mean, if if you're if he's cool, I mean, I'll just give me his give me his contact. I'll do an interview with. I'd yeah. love to do that. Oh yeah, he was. Uh, well, you're not. You, you need a two-hour show because once he start talking and telling no, you, no, no, dude, we, no, I, you know, we do a couple, couple hour sets, but we, we'll do set two. But man, it, it's just so nice to, to connect with your family history and to get your history on the table, and, and we'll do it again. I got to go to Popeyes. I'm hungry right now. Man, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm uh, in my walking to my car as we speak. To, uh, to go get me a two-piece with fries. Do it, no, I'm, I'm, dude. All, I don't even get the chicken. Only the red beans and rice, dude, and some biscuits. I'm good. Well, I'm going for the whole work. <laughs> I, 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 I get a breast with two legs, mild, or whatever, with red beans and rice, and I get some fries, too. You know, I, I go all out. And the biscuits. You got to have a biscuit. Biscuits are you know, essential, yeah. dude. I'll take some coleslaw, yeah. too. But, yeah, that's it, it, it. Dude, man, have a ball. I'll, I'll send this interview to you later, and we'll we'll do it again. Love you, man. Be good. Much love. Be cool. Peace. Bye.